Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Evan. Glad that you're here this morning as we continue uh, talking about how to study the Bible. This is week two of a three-week part of how to study the Bible. We're titling it Conversations because we're entering into the bigger conversation in this week's steps. And as we do so, let's read from Titus chapter 2 as our scripture reading this morning and use that as our guide and we'll kind of do some of the steps in Titus 2 this morning. I encourage you to find it electronically, physically. If you don't have a Bible, page 1121 of the Pew Bible that's in front of you and you can take it home with you if you need a Bible. It's yours on the house. Titus 2. We'll read the whole thing. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be unashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. As we talk about read, study, and loving the Bible, we're reminded that the Bible is a gift and God has given it to us. There's joy in the pages of Scripture, but there's also transformation there because we approach Scripture to, to discover and have a living relationship with the God behind the pages of Scripture the God who's given it to us as a gift. And so we talked last week in our study about, uh, uh, not implications, that's next week, about the foundations of Bible study. We're kind of going through the very steps. There's a sheet in the back. It was also in the Tuesday email that you can use if you want. It's sort of a method I've pieced together from a lot of other methods. You could use all kinds of different ways of studying the Bible. This is a, a, a simple way that I've put together that I think is adjustable. And up until most of the stuff we're talking about today, very adjustable, but there's one, one part that I would suggest that we'll get to today that you shouldn't move and short, short circuit. But what, we, what we've talked about is uh, how to sort of set up those basic questions, who, what, where, why, when, all of that sort of thing. This week, we're talking about getting into the bigger conversations with other believers, with the church, with scripture itself. That's where we're going this morning. And, and I want to point out at the uh, beginning of this that something about me and what animates me in ministry and in life in general is I love growth. I was also reminded this morning that I love sugar, but that's not what we're talking about. I love growth. I love to watch things grow. I love to see people grow. I have, currently have 
plants growing from seeds, vegetables growing from seeds in the house that are doing very well. I love watching things grow like that. I love things that are automatic, that just do things automatically. But when it comes to people, one of my favorite things is watching those moments where you have the light bulb conversations. I've been, I've had these moments, you've probably had these moments where you're talking to someone and for the first time they come to a conclusion when they're saying a sentence or a thought that they had never thought of before and the light bulb goes on and they're like, oh, new horizons have opened up just by speaking that sentence or reading that text or whatever it is. I love those moments. Those animate me. I love having them. I love when people experience them. And so those are kind of what we're, what we should hope for as we uncover and study scripture. We should be looking for those moments of growth where the light bulb goes on and we say, I've, I've never even thought about that before. I'd never occurred to me that God could be doing that. And what's crazy and why we bring up the conversation part of things this week is we have almost an embarrassment of riches at this point in history of resources that can help us understand and grow in God's word. It's a remarkable thing from Christians past and present and even our understanding of scripture itself. And so the point that we made last week is that all we need is found in God's word. He's given us what we need for understanding, for salvation through his word, but it turns out that it's best studied with his people. And that's something we ought not forget and something that we talk about this week. So the process so far, just so we're clear on where we've been and the study points, because this is a little teaching preaching at the same time, is you got to schedule, if you're going to study scripture, you need to schedule the time. If you don't study the time, you won't do it. It just won't happen. We said also that you need to read the larger section. So if you decide you're just going to do one verse, read a lot of verses around it. If you're going to do part of a letter or all of a letter, read the whole thing. If you're going to do an Old Testament prophet, you know, maybe don't read all of Isaiah. Unless, I mean, I, I think you should, but if you're just doing one section of it, read a couple chapters around it. Get your bearings on where whatever it is falls in context. We said last week, pray. Don't underestimate this point. Pray, because if you don't do this, you have to ask the question, why am I doing this? If it's not to have a deeper relationship with the living God, then why are you studying the scriptures, right? So praying, praying matters more than anything. And then answer the basic questions, the who, what, where, why, when kinds of questions as much as you can as you study scripture. And one of those will come in, into play this week again. We couldn't answer it all last week. This week, we're going to talk about comparing translations, which is functionally a word study in English. Um, and then we're going to talk about creating your own list of questions and then joining the larger conversation. So let's talk about translations. Um, I could talk about this for hours. So Dan, if I keep going and it's lunchtime, just give me the high sign, okay? Because um, <clears throat> I know you like translations too. Um, my philosophy on translations is use them. That's how I approach them. Uh, translations can be uh, very heated sometimes for people to discuss. They can be very emotional. We get tied to our specific translations uh, that we like, and that's perfectly fine. But I think if you're going to use them, one of the things, one of the reasons we bring this up is that when we read scripture, there are sometimes words or things that will confound us. And I'm just making the assumption this morning that most of us don't possess the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and a smattering of Aramaic to do word studies with those tools. Am, am I moving in the right direction? Okay. I've got Greek, not real well, but well enough to, to make a mess of things. And I don't have Hebrew and Aramaic at all. So I can, I can work with some of it, but for most of us, the best way we're going to find to do word studies or to kind of get to those confounding points is to compare translations and kind of get our bearings that way. And you'll get pretty far actually doing that. And so I, I want to go through and give you an idea of 
the, the continuum of translations out there, and I'll, I won't take long on this, but I think it's worth understanding if you're going to understand how to use those tools well. I also know that some of you will find this super fascinating, so we'll put it, we're going to have a couple charts. We're going to put one chart on the screen, and I know it's going to be small, but we'll zero in on the two sides. So when it comes to translations, um, one of the people will talk about, well, what's the best translation? The best translation is the one that's going to do what you need it to do to get to the meaning of the text. That's what's going to happen. And so you have a, a spectrum from one side to the other, a continuum of word-for-word -word translation to thought-for-thought. -thought. That's what's going on in the world of trans translations. And so we'll zero in on one side, go to the next slide here. And like I said, I, I don't want to take super long on this, but there is confusion here and it's worth pointing out. A literal translation is going to be on your farthest word-for-word -word side, and sometimes people will put in literal translations, things that aren't literal translations, but they'll put them there and think these are the best because they're literal. A literal translation by technical standards is an interlinear translation. There's one right here if you want to come up after the service and look. It's where they put the Greek or the Hebrew word and the corresponding English word. It's not going to read well in English. They put them next to each other so you can see. That is a literal translation. That's all they are. Then you get into, and there's, there's three phrases that they use, formal equivalence, functional equivalence, dynamic equivalence. Don't worry about them too much. All that to say, as you move across the continuum, you're not literal anymore, but you're trying for word for word. A lot of people love the New American Standard Bible, for instance, which they call a literal Bible. It's not literal, it's word for word, but it still has to make edits sometimes. They all do, that's why it's not technically literal. But it's gonna be as close as possible that's what they're trying for, to be a word-for-word -word translation, to get the word order right. Greek reads different, for instance, than English. So it's going to read a little clunky sometimes in English, but it works. It does the job. You can see like the, the ESV, it's a more modern uh, translation of kind of the King James Revised Standard uh, family of texts. The King James Version, these are, these are in the word-for-word -word side, but as you kind of come towards the middle of the continuum, they're making more uh, calls of where they have to move things around a little bit. Uh, revised standard would be in this world as well, and it makes a few more calls towards what, what in the middle, we can go to the next slide, is then called the, the functional equivalence. That is, they're still shooting for word for word, new international version is like this, but they're going to more quickly go to change word order. That's what they're doing. And then uh, you have what's called dynamic equivalence, new living translation, if anybody's got one of those, um, that's, there you go in the back, that one's aiming much more for thought for thought, so they're going to make a lot, they're going to go much quicker from breaking word order to what's the thought, what's the meaning, we're trying to get that across as much as possible, and then paraphrase, and let me say a word about paraphrase so we can distinguish something here. Paraphrase, uh, they're completely going thought for thought uh, in a paraphrase, and sometimes people will rag on paraphrases as they're not real translations, and they're right, they're not actually translations, they're paraphrases, there's a different thing. Usually translations have a committee. Almost always paraphrases are just one person who's trying to do something specific as they translate the text, but they're trying to aim you back to a translation is what they're trying to do. And you'll find that. Eugene Peterson, the message, that's what he's trying to do with the message. Reignite or ignite a love for scripture and then aim you back to a translation. That's what he says in the introduction. The whole idea with any of these is that we want clarity in the meaning of scripture. That's all translation committees are trying to do. They're trying to make it clear and in, in using a philosophy of translating to do that. That's why, the, for instance, the New International Version was created in the 60s because 
uh, there, were just, there was a guy that was evangelizing with the King James and realizing he had to translate the King James for people. So he said, well, couldn't we have a different translation? Okay, well, let's create that. That's what they were doing. That's what translations are always trying to do. And the key distinction, the reason to understand this is that there's a lot of philosophies going on there. I would suggest that for the most part, there, there are one or two translations I'm not nuts about, but you're going to be hard-pressed to find a lot of bad translations in the English language. Most of them are going to be good. They work. Use them. And the key distinction is, if a translation, you want to use a translation that helps you understand the meaning of the text. If you got to the meaning of the text, you're good. You did it. You achieved the goal, okay? That's the deal with translations. Now, let's use a couple, though, to make some distinctions and, and see how we can use them to our advantage to understand the text. Sometimes you'll just see differences there. So let's go to Titus 2. And we're going to use the New International Version, the Revised Standard, and the New American Standard. So we've got a, a functional equivalent and then two of the um, formal equivalent, but formal moving towards functional and formal moving towards literal. And I want to show you what I did here because I, I told you last week to get a journal and write things down. So I took all the key words and I wrote NIV, RSV, and, and New American Standard and put them next to each other in each verse so I can kind of see where are the differences. The ones where they're the same, not worried about those. Where the differences are, aha, that's where I can focus my study. That's where I'm going to need to define some words. So I did that this week, and you can see in Titus 2.2, for instance, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. If you do a comparison, you're going to find that different, the different translations kind of used a different word to get at the same thing, but they consistently used it. And there's not a lot of confusion there. The idea of being temperate, self-controlled, sound in faith, they're, they're getting to the same thing. It's not actually that confusing, in my opinion. You can compare the translations, you're going to see they're aiming at the same thing, this idea of self-control, and, and being theologically sound, and not being a knee-jerk reactor. That's what it says. It's not complicated. Verse 10, when we get into the slavery issue, and we'll come back to that, uh, here it says, and not to steal from them. And here you can see different words, and maybe you can see why uh, at different time periods you might use different words, um, but there's no confusion. So NIV says not to steal, the Revised Standard Version says not to pilfer, or nor to pilfer, I don't want to miss that, nor to pilfer, as I saw it this week. Um, they mean the same thing, right? So it's not real confusing. However, maybe our word usage might be different depending on generation, that kind of thing. If, if I hear people say pilfer right now, it, I often hear people using it to kind of tone down the idea of stealing a little bit. Steal, but we get the idea. It's the same thing, you know, so that's why different word usage might matter at different times, but we get it. Uh, but Titus 2.5 might be a place where we might find two different words, and we might want to dig a little bit more. It's not real complicated, but talking about the younger women, to be self-controlled and pure. Mine says pure. Revised standard, again, we'll compare it. It says chaste. Is it the same thing? What's it getting at there? And there we can simply start to search a little bit. So we could look at the revised standard and say, well, does it use chaste anywhere else in Titus? And how does it define it? It doesn't. It only uses it in that one space. Pure in the NIV, we can say, well, is that used anywhere else? Okay, we can find pure in other places, so we can try and see if we can piece together. And we'll find pure in the RSV, so we can probably see that, okay, maybe they're getting at the same thing. Start looking through the text and see, what did it mean when it said it in other places? And we went over this last week a little bit. To, to be pure was used earlier in Titus 1 to talk about the qualifications for elders. Obviously, it seems to have some moral quality to it here, um, as well as some... Uh, 
theological and spiritual quality of how the, the body is supposed to function, so we can kind of get an idea as we look at the context. It is supposed to be in that same category, temperate and self-controlled, faithful to your husband in this case. Not a knee-jerk reactor. Morally appropriate, those kinds of things. So we get the idea. But, but you can zero in on that. Because you saw a difference, you could zero in and say, okay, now I want to define this term more, and I use the text to do it. it the, the tools are there in many cases to do it. What I want to also point out, though, is um, just like last week I said praying is one of the key things that we need to do when we study Scripture, I want to give you sort of a, we'll call it a pro tip this week, on, on if you get to passages that really confound you, one thing you can do, and you're having trouble even kind of putting together things in the text, memorize it. Memorize it. Even if it's a funky text and you're not sure what to do with it, if you find one that encourages you, memorize it for sure. But if you find one that confounds you, memorize that scripture. Because when you memorize it, you internalize it, and you're thinking about it all the time, everywhere, as you go around, and people will usually pass me off and say, I can't memorize. You can you could probably do a lot of commercial jingles from your entire life right now if we went through them. You can memorize. Song lyrics, you can memorize. It doesn't take long to memorize, and what I've discovered is when you take in the text like that, it starts working on you in remarkable ways, and you start to figure things out about that text very quickly. Very quickly, things start to be unlocked in what that text may mean. Okay, so that's translations. We didn't spend too much time on it, but you get the idea. You can use them. Uh, for any of you that use online tools, there's a lot of good online tools to just do a simple comparison of single verses and that kind of thing. You can sit with four or five translations in front of you. doesn't matter how you want to do it. I just very much recommend using them as you study. You'll, you'll get to what you need to zero in on quickly. The next step that we're going to talk about is to create a list of questions. We don't need to hang on this long, but I just want to point out that um, last week I said, you know, making an outline is a good thing to do as you study scripture. And so I didn't actually do it last week. I did it this week and I saw some bigger themes. So you should be writing things down as you study scripture. But as I put together an outline and even after doing it, I would have done a different outline five minutes later. So you might change that. It's fine. But I noticed a couple things in the text that are worth going after as well that I could put in a list of questions. So I noticed that in our passage this week, if you look at verse 1 and verse 15, it's almost like Peter, not Peter, Paul, makes it a parenthesis around the text, which is something that happens in biblical literature. Like he says, this is what you're supposed to teach at the beginning. And at the end he says, and these are the things you're supposed to teach. It kind of makes it a self-contained unit. And then within that uh, unit, as you look in there, you see what would be, I would say, a mild chiastic uh, uh, pattern, which is an A, B, C, B, A, or A, B, C, B, A, and then he makes some points about where he puts things. That is to say, older women, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. It kind of goes inward and then comes out. I don't want to make much about that, but I do want to point out that in outlining, I also saw where, the, where slaves fit in compared to where Jesus was in the outline and what he had to say, and hold that thought because we'll come to it. But as you chart things out, as you write things down, as you figure things out, you can start to see some of these patterns and things that you want to zero in on as you join the larger conversation. And this is where I want to point out when we were talking about the, the method that we can use. Some people have told me, I like to start with comparing translations and do other things. Don't care. You can start wherever you want on it. What my, my big beef is and what I think is very important is don't 
use other resources outside of your own just study of Scripture until you have to. That's the most important part of the first half of how, how to study Scripture that I want you to get. Because then we take on the Scripture, we take it and we really internalize it, we understand it, we've worked through it, and we're not making somebody else do that for us because we'll never be transformed if we do that. We have to do the work ourselves of digging in and, and rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty, working through the text ourselves and coming up with those questions before we enter the larger conversation as much as possible. So now, let's talk about the larger conversation, because here it's really important that when we study Scripture, we do it engaging with other Scriptures, cross-references, that kind of thing, that we do it with the church, both past and present, and we do it with the church locally, too, and saints that are living in our midst. Let's talk about with Scripture. These are the idea of cross-references. Many of you have study Bibles. You probably have a center column with cross-references. Those are super useful. You maybe have footnotes that have other cross-references. Those are super useful. You may even have notes if you have a, a super study Bible. Uh, those are super useful. Use all of those tools. Sometimes I just Google search. I can't remember where this passage is found. I'm like, Google it. It'll find it even faster than the Bible software. And then you find a whole list of things. But in this particular case, as we study Titus, you know, I, I just looked up Titus and just typed it in, in a Bible search. And I found about Titus, uh, that we find him in 2 Corinthians 8 and 12, as well as in Acts, he's brought up. And he's the one who takes the collection of the poor, for the poor to the churches that are suffering from famine. He's a co-laborer with Paul out in the field. He's a leader out in the field uh, with Paul. He's been around, and then he gets appointed, as we saw last week, as sort of a bishop. It uses the words like that, though, from where we get bishop, or regional pastor for the island of Crete. This guy has experience. He knows what's going on with churches as they're growing. He knows what's going on and how the churches are structured. And so as we look at sort of the cross-references and the bigger picture, and we've written down all of our questions, when we go back to the who, what, where, why, when question of last week and wonder about the author, who's this written to, I think a question should pop out of our mind as we've worked through this. This information seems very basic for Titus if he's an experienced, trusted leader within the church. He's probably seen what the qualifications for elders are and what he's supposed to teach. Why is Paul writing to an experienced pastor to tell him all this basic information? Probably because it's not for Titus. Who do we think it's for? All the churches it's going to be read to, to reinforce so that they hear this is what Titus is here to do. Paul's reinforcing Titus's role with probably what Titus already knew so that the rest of the churches can hear it and it, it holds up Titus as a leader who's going to do this stuff, so expect it. This is how we're supposed to operate, how we're supposed to be. He's supporting his leadership. Cross-references can help us understand big things like that. We can dig into smaller things within the text, too, and understand that. So that's conversation with Scripture. And as, as one professor I had years ago told me, if, you, if you're confounded or struggling through Scripture, he said the answer is always within an inch of the text. It's within an inch of the text, like this. You're going to find it in Scripture somewhere, some way to work through what's going on. Second thing is that the larger conversation is with the church, both historic and the church currently, and scholars and whatever, commentaries, anything you can get your hands on that's going to help you understand the broader conversation, because people have written about it, talked about it, worked through it before, and so there's a way to engage in that conversation. 
So here, let's look at the issue of slavery, because that obviously got brought up here within our text. Um, and this is where your hermeneutic, what we talked about last week, matters, how you, how you look at the text. You actually want to put yourself in the days of Titus. If you come at this simply as a 21st century American Lincoln resident, you might not get to the, what's going on here. That is to say, we have centuries of chattel slavery that we live through in our part of the world. Slavery is bad in all of its forms. It's not exactly the same thing that they're dealing with here, even though it's still slavery. So it's not quite the same system that they're working with here when Paul says this. And so we need to kind of enter ourselves into that world of what Paul is saying and how to deal with that. Paul has a similar statement that I, I think is worth pointing out in 1 Peter 2.18. Here's where cross-references help again. 1 Peter 2.18, Paul says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. A couple things about that to bring it up. It sounds similar to what Paul is saying in a slightly bigger version here in Titus. Uh, but he, he's pointing out that the people who are at the lowest part of society, enslaved in the physical life, they get freedom in Christ, but they also stand in solidarity with the unjust suffering of Christ more than anybody else. They have a, a witness that is different than anybody else possibly has. I will also make the commentary that this First Peter passage has sometimes been used to tell women, particularly in uh, unjust and abusive situations, to stay with their husbands. That's not what this is talking about at all, so please never use it that way, nor let anybody else do it. That's an, uh, eisegetical, not exegetical, to go back to our terms from last week. In the ancient world, slavery itself, and you can, this is where you kind of got to dig a little bit to, to understand this and use other sources to understand this, slaves could get out of slavery. It wasn't wildly common. It could happen that you could be manumitted either by your master giving you that manumission um, or by purchasing your own freedom. It was possible. The system we had in our country, that wasn't really a possibility other than escape. So there's a difference there. But it was very difficult, as I said, for that to happen. There's also a variance in how slaves were treated in the ancient world. Some were horribly treated, and some were better educated than free, free people and did very well for themselves and were treated very well. So there's a wide variety of how that works out. That's not that Paul's apologizing for slavery, but he's seeing something very specific going on in a system that's going to be very hard to change with one or two sentences in the New Testament. Right? Just like if I told you to all convert to cryptocurrency by the end of the month, and that's the only thing you should use, probably going to be hard, right? It's just not the system that we're in. Paul he himself refers to himself as a slave for Christ in Romans 1 and Philippians 1 when he talks about it. Slaves themselves were attracted to the gospel because of freedom. In Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. They came to the church because even though they were in bondage in real life through Christ, they were free and they saw that. We can see that in church history as well. Women and slaves particularly were very attracted to the freedom that the church brought. 
Paul saw in this, as he writes, a chance to show who Christ is, even when you can't get out of the bondage, that you're actually free in Christ, even in that. And Christians in history worked to free slaves, actually. 96 AD, the book of First Clement. This is where we can get the broader conversation. This is just after the New Testament period. Clement writes, We know that many among ourselves have given themselves to bondage, that is slavery, that they might ransom others. People sold themselves from the church into slavery to free other slaves. They were not for it in, in New Testament days in the church. Clement goes on, many have delivered themselves to slavery and provided food for others with the price they received for themselves. Paul, nor the early church, is upholding a system of slavery. He's saying you're stuck in it. If you're stuck in it, let's be a witness to Christ in it. We can also see in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, how they stand in solidarity with Christ. We have this early creed, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, same word, slave, being made in human likeness. The unfortunate reality is that slavery was a thing. The remarkable thing in how Paul structures this is that slaves stand in solidarity with Christ and in Christ they're free. Even if for the time being they're not. John Calvin, again, a, a note from history, he's commenting on this passage uh, about how the being enslaved and being like Christ can actually reveal the glory of Christ. He says, this ought to be a sharp spur of exhortation to us when we learn that our becoming conduct adorns the doctrine of God, which at the same time is a mirror of his glory. Even in the worst, the hardest, and the most abject of circumstances in our lives, if our hope is on Jesus Christ, we can witness to his glory. We have leverage beyond the current power to reveal the power of God in and through us. We join the conversation then with Scripture, with the church, and with other believers, things like groups, people we meet with here, friends, like we talked about Bible buddies early on, people that we would meet with, who we could talk about this with. Uh, I had a, a professor years ago who was a New Testament scholar who uh, was, when he was working on his PhD, he said he was really miffed because he was meeting with a small group and in his area of study, they were studying the, the books that he was working on and had been working on for years to write this dissertation. And this woman in the group who had far less education and experience with the text always came up with far more profound thoughts than he did. But he said, then I wasn't miffed after a while because I realized that God can do some remarkable things when we meet as a group and study his word. And that's just the thing, right? Groups and friends studying scripture together bring new eyes to the text that we wouldn't have seen on our own. They bring accountability so that we're tied to the authority of the text in a stronger way. And they actually spur us on to grow and take on what the text says as a real challenge. Silly example I, I was thinking of this week, but uh, if you took a COVID home test, I don't know if anybody did one of these, you have to stick the little swab somewhere, right? If you do it yourself, you're not going to be as aggressive as if somebody else did it to you, right? When you meet with groups and other believers, you're going to be challenged. 
because we would otherwise not challenge ourselves nearly as hard. There's your gross example for the morning. Thank you, Pastor. The other thing is we know from Christian history that a group of people will see things more clearly than individuals, right? It's, it's in individuals that we run into error. It's when groups of people are studying God's word together, they seem to come to the same conclusions over and over as a general rule. But the other thing I want to point out about this ties to slavery, ties to groups, ties to all the stuff that Paul's been saying. And it's included in the text as well when it's talking about Christ. It's way easier to have hope and hold on to hope when you meet with others. If you suffer, if you go through hardship, if you go through difficulty in this life and you're alone, it is so much harder to hold on to hope than when you're meeting with others who have the same hope. Slaves in unjust circumstances in the ancient world, women who were married off at super young ages and came to Christ and their husbands didn't come to Christ, but going to, church, to worship regularly, once a week, would come and they'd sense that freedom and the equality at the foot of the cross with everybody else. And they could then, with their uh, fellow believers, stand in solidarity and look to the hope that is to come and not simply st get stuck in the sufferings and the hardship of now. And that's always the case. The persecuted church goes through the same thing in this world. The hope that they find is greater than the moment now because they know that Christ is doing something remarkable through them. And as a people, they can see that and hold on to that. As individuals, we lose that far too easily and far too quickly. If you've been purified with Christ, Paul tells us, you're able to live in that hope. And as you do it with God's people, you're able to live in that hope better. As individuals, we will fail. As a people, sometimes we'll have our little waffly moments, but we're going to see much more clearly together than apart. The hope that we have in Christ when things are good and when things are bad. That's why it's so crucial that we study the Bible with God's people, with the full counsel of Scripture, with the church historic, and with the, the living saints that we have with us. Let's go to the table this morning, and then we can pray together at the table.